been a great morning, but I, I just want you to know we are going to be looking at a, a heavy topic for the next, I think it's going to be four weeks. I thought it was going to be a three-part series, because as I studied this week, it, it's going to turn into four. And actually, uh, this morning's, anyway, I'll just get going, you'll figure it out. Anyway, look at your outline. <laughs> get your outline out. Okay. And uh, it's called The Christian at War, out of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. And I had three sermons here, the Christian, in, the Christian's enemy, the Christian's armor, and the Christian's tactic. But what's going to happen is we're going to spend two weeks at point number one. Two weeks at point number one, the Christian's enemy. And uh, because it's really the foundation for the armor, foundation for prayer, and everything else. And uh, we really don't talk about it that much. We kind of sweep off spiritual warfare and the devil and all that off the side as if it's, yeah, it's there, but we really ignore him. Uh, we don't spend much time there. But, beloved, I think we really need to. And uh, no matter what age we are, what day and age we live in, we need to. So, we live in a society that is, well, increasingly becoming worldly. That's a dumb moment, right? Okay, it's, it's obvious, becoming more worldly. The hate, the immorality, and even the bizarre behavior, it just seems to be on the increase. It's become all too common. Just this past week, we had more hate, didn't we? 17 students killed in the high school. As I was preparing the sermon this week, that happened down in Florida. Such hate. Uh, incredible. But you know what? That's a common occurrence. It happens, what, three, four times a year on a mass scale. You know, not to mention two or three you know, at a time, but it was 15, 17, 20. It's just over and over and over again. We've got to ask the question, what is going on? And then there's bizarre behavior that you read about or even heard about on the news in the most late, uh, the most recent, I should say, these little soap pods and kids eating soap pods. Yeah, I heard that. Has, y'all hear about that? I heard, yeah, okay, half of us have. It's nuts. Tide pods, like the tide stuff. The little pod, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It goes in the laundry machine? Yeah. Yeah. It's a trend. It's a trend. It's a bizarre trend. But you have to be thinking, what in the world's going on? Uh, there and all in the midst of all this heightened, I call it foolishness and evil. There are two basic responses to this. First of all, there's a secular response. The secular response is not surprising. It's not a spiritual response because they don't believe in Christ. Therefore, they don't believe in the devil. So all that's out of the picture. So they basically approach it from a physical point of view or or mental. And so instead of sin, it, it is a disease. Okay. And so it's an addiction, and they try to cure it through drugs or new regulations or new laws that way. They're coming at it from that angle. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with our civil authorities trying to deal with it from that angle, but therein we do find the solution because we don't understand what the real problem is. And so that's from a secular standpoint. They address these sin problems and foolishness from that angle. And then there's one that comes from the religious world. And I'm very broad with this. And you get a whole lot of responses. And, but I was basically just one or two major ones. Uh, from deliverance ministries that you heard about, particularly in the 80s and 90s, and the, the turn of the century, uh, the millennium, millennium, the religious deliverance ministries that find a devil in everything, the demon of alcohol, the demon of this, the demon of that. And almost like behind every corner, they're, they're demonic. There's a demon there waiting for you. And sometimes these two things come together. 
even in some religious circles and liberal evangelical circles, I call liberal evangelical, liberal churches, they really just park Satan over to the side. And they kind of embrace the world's secular approach to all this. The reason why I say all that is this. Now, more than ever, we need a biblically-based, clear-headed approach to what we see going on around us in this world. Not only what we see going on around us, but actually to us. Okay? And that's going to be more next week. Okay? That's going to be more next week. And uh, we need to understand what God's Word has to say. As Christians, we need to be cognizant of what is going on around us. That there is a battle going on that we do not see, but it's just as real as you and I being here this morning. And we tend to gloss over it, we tend to ignore it, we don't talk about it a whole lot. But even more importantly, how do those powers and how those principalities, how does Satan around us have an effect on us today? Okay? He doesn't deal directly with us, but how does he do it indirectly? And through what means does he try to get to uh, the church? And by what means does he keep the unbelievers' mind blinded from the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we know he does according to 2 Corinthians 4. 4. So we're going to spend, it's going to be this Sunday and three more, four Sundays dealing with the Christian at war out of Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. It's also known as the believer's armor. And so what I want us to do is stand we're going to read together just verses 10, 11, and 12. 10, 11, and 12. Because before Paul gets to the armor, he talks about the enemy. In verses 10 through 12. So let's read it together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, that is the Lord's might, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world's forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Father in heaven, Lord God, it's so important. It's beyond important. It's mandated of your children to understand the work and the role of the enemy. And Father, whether we like it or not, whether we want it or not, we are at war. We've not declared it, but the enemy has declared it on us. And there's no way out. So God, we know that you want to equip us with your word, the truths of your word, and how to look at our world, how to look at our culture, but also how to look at the church, and to see and understand the schemes, the ways, the means of the evil one, the devil himself. So Father, give us wisdom. Father, make us wise unto your word. You've given us wisdom in your Bible. Make us wise with it. Help us to wield it, not just in the world, but in our own lives in particular. And so, God, thank you for this time together. And Lord God, this is serious because life and death is at stake. And I'm not talking, Lord God, physical but spiritual. Father, help us in the church, this grace community church, to understand your will and your ways in this area. Father, thank you for these wonderful words of life by Paul. Let your spirit move them to write. They are God-breathed, they are perfect, they are in air, and they are absolutely necessary for your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to notice, looking at the text in verse 10 in particularly, 
that our text takes an abrupt turn in verse 10. Look in your Bibles for a moment. Look there. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. For example, he goes from encouraging us towards godliness to all of a sudden standing firm against the devil. Okay? He's going from our walk in the area of our marriage, walk in our homes and walking, bringing Christ to work, to now all of a sudden stand firm against the schemes of the devil. But it's not as if there's no continuity. Paul doesn't say, okay, I'm parking all this aside and let's talk about spiritual warfare. What he's saying is this. If you desire to be Christ into your marriage, if you desire to be Christ into your parenting, if you desire to bring Christ into work, then guess what? You will experience opposition from the evil one. That's what he's saying. So, when we read, we've been, in, for weeks, been in chapter 4 and 5. If you want to bring Christ into the church, it's his church, he's there anyway, but you want to love one another in the body of Christ, you want to bring him home into your marriage and with your children and bring him to work, guess what's going to happen? Verse 10, be strong in the Lord. Why do I need to be strong? Because the devil hates Christ and he doesn't want him anywhere around. Period. That's why. Those who desire to live for Christ will struggle against the enemy's opposition. And the enemy is called the devil. He opposes the church because the church is the light of Christ in this dark world. And he opposes Christ anywhere and everywhere. First of all, let's get this down. If you are a true believer, Satan hates you. Period. You're hated. He hates you because you're in Christ. Verse 10 says, be strong in the Lord. It doesn't say be strong in anybody else, but in the Lord. Right there you know, wait, if it's in reference to the Lord, I have a relationship with him, that's the reason why Satan, the devil, hates me. That's why you feel what you feel every day. That's why you too struggle against sin. Forget about what's going on in Florida. Forget about what's going on in the news. Look at your own life. Look at how you each and every day struggle with your flesh. You know that your flesh has a love affair with the world. And that's what you feel. That's what you experience in your thought life. When you get angry at somebody or with the lusts. Lust of the minds, lust of the flesh. You see what I'm saying here? So you have a flesh residing in you that has a love affair with the culture around it. It's called worldliness. And the worldliness of the world, of the culture, appeals to your flesh. And your flesh, why? Because your flesh has a love affair with the world and its worldliness around you, which appeals to you through all sorts of venues like television and the internet. And so on and so forth. Other people work. That's why we experience all that tension and all that temptation. We can't run and hide from it. Anyway, first of all, if you're a true believer, you're hated. Satan hates you. He hates you because you're in Christ. He hates you because you bear the image of Christ. Because you are God's workmanship created unto good works for Christ. He hates you because by God's sovereign grace, you are in Christ. You deserted Satan. Satan hates to be deserted. 
you turned to Christ, because you turned away from Satan. And today, as Peter would testify that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Satan hates us right. Got it? We talk about love, love, love all the time, don't we? But here, when you search the scriptures, you know that because of Christ, we are hated. Secondly, when Satan can't get you back, he wants to sift you as wheat, and he wants to devour you. Look at verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You know, that word struggle means to wrestle. It's in reference to hand-to-hand combat. First of all, it's not a physical war we're in. It's a spiritual battle, and it's, it's a real battle. It's hand-to-hand combat, spiritually speaking. And you know, when you think about wrestling for a moment, it's a fight characterized by trickery and strategy. And I'm not talking about the WWE on TV. I'm talking about the good wrestling. Okay, maybe that too, but the good wrestling like the universities, you know, like Iowa versus Michigan and, you know, all that. I mean, they have strategy. Okay? They have moves. They want your opponent, they want their opponent to think they're going one direction when you're going to really go another because I just depend the other guy. And Satan wants to pin us. So let's not forget what Christ told Peter in Luke 22 31. Satan's asked about sift you as wheat. I love this later on. In 1 Peter 5 8, Peter writes this now seasoned as a believer. He now warns the church. Be a sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. If you're an alert Christian, if you're sober in spirit, you're going to be watching. You're going to have your antennas up. And you're going to know Satan wants to devour you. He wants to destroy you. First, he wants to sift you. He wants to crumble you. He wants you to fall. He wants you to fail. Not, not, not necessarily in, in worldly things. But I'm talking about in your walk with Christ. Because once he gets you to stumble and to fail and fall and to sin, the next, he, doesn't, he doesn't give up. He's relentless. Then he's going to come to you with these thoughts to go, see, you're unworthy to be a follower of Christ. He's going to read doubts in your mind. Beloved, please, these next couple of weeks, you've got to get this. The worst thing a Christian, the worst place a Christian could be is a place of no warfare. It's a place of thinking, well, I'm not there. As the Bible says, no, yes, if you're in Christ, you're there. Okay? So we've got to identify what that warfare looks like. We're going to do that this morning. Satan can't get you back, so he wants to sift you. He wants to destroy you. So, you're a believer, and whether you like it or not, guess what? You're in warfare. You're in warfare. You don't have a choice. You can't retire from it. Okay? And the older you get, the more you realize that. You can't retire from it. It's still there. You cannot quit. You cannot escape it. There is no peace treaty that we can come up with. Okay? There's no medical deferment, and there's no plea for pacifism. You're in it, whether you like it or, or, or not. You cannot avoid the spiritual bullets and the bombs, the doubts, the accusations, the threats that come from the evil one himself. Whether you realize it or not, you are in a war. To ignore this truth is to set yourself up for defeat. To ignore this truth is to set yourself up for living a defeated Christian 
Saul. Third, you're in a spiritual holy war. It's a spiritual holy war. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's spiritual, but it's also holy. It's in the Lord. The strength of his might. It's standing against his schemes because you want to live a life that pleases the Lord. That's what Peter said, the pursuit of holiness. And your pursuit of holiness, your pursuit of living for Christ in your home, with your children, with your wife, at work, in the church, in that pursuit. We, we are set up, you want to set those relationships aside and let Christ rule and reign those relationships so that you magnify him. It is a holy war. We do not war for worldly possessions. We do not war for worldly power or honor. This war ain't higher than that. Infinitely higher than that. It's a war for the truth. It's a war for the righteousness of Christ. And it's a war for the glory of the living God and His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what this war is about. So no wonder Paul, after spending 56 verses, that would be chapters 1, 2, and 3, after 56 verses describing how blessed we are in Christ, and then spending another 64 verses urging Christians to live for Christ, Paul now comes to verse 10. Be strong, because this war is not for wimps. You know, like never before, we've got these gyms, and we've got all this, let's get fit and everything physically. All the commercials. All the, the gym fitness, world fitness, and, you know, the YMCA, they've been around for a while, but you, you, all the time you watch the TV or whatever you, you know, on the internet, you got all these advertisements to go to the gym and get physically fit. Never once you hear about being spiritually fit. But from this lecture, from this pastor, making disciples is about being spiritually fit to stand firm against the schemes of the evil one, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And just like you cannot be strong without getting to going to a gym and running and learning aerobics and lifting weights, you cannot be a strong Christian without being in your Bible. And God, Peter comes along and 2 Peter says, God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We are already equipped to be strong. The question is, do we pick up the equipment and start exercising with it? And we must, because we're in a battle, we're in a war. So no wonder Paul urges us to finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his mind. Why? Because we're in a war against an enemy who does not want you and I to succeed in our walk with Jesus Christ. The last thing he wants is for us to become a brighter light in this dark world. The last thing he wants is for us to become the light of Christ to those around us. He hates the truth. He hates the righteousness of God. He hates the glory of his son. And he hates the church. That is the devil. He hates it all. He's an enemy according to chapter 2 of Ephesians verse 1 and 3. He's a control of the, of the world and his culture. And he has gotten to the world. And over time, he has slowly formulated a worldliness that ends up blinding the minds of the unbelieving a worldliness that lures the church or tries to lure the church, the church members, the church, the followers of Christ away from Christ unto himself. And he has allies called the flesh that he can appeal to. We'll get there primarily next week. 
There's a couple of things I want to do just for this morning in the time we have. And before we do, we've got to avoid two extremes. I want to be clear about this. One extreme, it underestimates Satan. Okay? The other extreme overestimates him. Gives him way too much credit. Alright? So we've got to find that balance. And that's what we're going to try to do for the next for these four weeks. Excuse me. This morning we're going to look at the person of the devil. We're going to look at his character and his allies and a little, maybe a little bit of his work if we've got time for that. If not, we'll pick it up there. And uh, we're also next week going to look at his methods, how he, you know, how he, how he works, how he operates, the means by which. Because yes, listen, listen, Satan is not here right now. Okay, we're going to figure that out in just a minute. Bible mm-hmm. teaches that he's a real person. He's not omnipresent like God. Okay, he, he, everything's not before him. Everything's before God. God's God. There is no other. Satan's created being, powerful as he is, he, he's not right here. Okay, in this room. However, he can still have influence. He influences the world to create a worldly system in order to appeal to our flesh, which is an ally to him. Because our flesh is love affair with the world. So if Satan can control the world, which will appeal to our flesh, that's how he drags us down. You understand that? So let's look at his person, first of all. Let's look at his person. We're just, we're just building this foundation right now. Number one, his person, he is not a personification of evil. He is a real person. Okay? Mark that down. He's not, he's not a representation of evil. He is a person. He is a fallen, created creature. Okay? And he's mentioned in both the Old and New Testament. His existence is attested to by both the Old and New Testament. For example, in the Old Testament, he's mentioned in Genesis, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 1 Chronicles, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, on and on. And then he's mentioned by every author in the New Testament. Every author in the New Testament. And Jesus. So we better take note. We better pay attention to this. Here's some of the Old Testament passages. Genesis 3, he's called the serpent. And what does he do there? He deceives. We're going to look further into that next week when we look at his methods. We look at his methods and his approach to Eve. First Chronicles 21. Write that down. First Chronicles 21.1. Look at this. Then Satan stood up against Israel. Satan stood up against Israel, God's chosen people, and moved David to number Israel. Now I want you to notice one thing. When you go to the Old Testament, nine times out of ten, the Old Testament uses the term Satan. When you go to the New Testament, it's the devil. Primarily. Okay? Satan means accuser. When he stands up and accuses the brethren. Devil, more used in the New Testament, slanderer. Okay? Very, very similar. But notice, this, if, here's a question. If this can happen to David, wow! He is a man after God's own heart. Then Satan stood up against Israel. And how is Satan going to attack Israel? By attacking its leader. And it caused David, moved him to number Israel. That's to sin. Because in David numbering Israel, he wasn't trusting his God. So maybe by worry, through anxiety, causing doubt in David, it caused David to number the troops. Right? Satan loves an anxious Christian. Satan loves a worrisome Christian. 
Because in those moments, we're more prone to fall to the temptation of it, whatever it may be. How about another one? Job chapter 1. you got to talk about Job, right? got to talk about Job chapter 1. Listen to chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Look at this picture of heaven. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan was amongst them. And the Lord pointed out Satan and said to him, Oh, there you are. Okay, from where do you come? As if he didn't know. Okay, how God engages conversation. The same thing with Eve and Adam, remember? Okay. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming around the earth and walking around on it. We see that Satan is what? A person. He is a person. He, he moved daily, but here he's roaming about the earth. And then verse 8, God initiates. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? If I was there and I was Job, I'd go, oh God, time out, please, we don't want to do it. It's like when Jesus told Peter, Satan's going to sit to his wheat. If I was Peter, I'd go, well, don't let him. Right? It's not that easy. <laughs> you know, I was talking to a brother, I was talking to a brother this week. I think, Edward, you were with me. And uh, one, of the, one of the thoughts was, why can't the Christian walk with you a lot easier? Why can't it just be simple? Remember that? Well, here's a great reason why. Satan is the one that loves the confusion, loves to confuse, and he wants to draw us away from that simple devotion to Christ. And by the way, simple does not mean easy. Okay? It does not mean easy. Simple as opposed to complex. Stay focused on Christ. That's what's simple. But it's hard because you're in warfare every step of the way. Okay, but back to this. The point with Job chapter 1 is that he is a person, number one, and number two, he roams about the earth, yet he can't act beyond the limits that God has for him. God gave limits to Satan. Verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. I got limitations for you. You get that? I love Zechariah, Zechariah 3 1. You like to turn there. It's very towards the end of your the Old Testament. Zechariah, probably right before Malachi. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to this. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. This is the vision from Zechariah. And Satan standing at his right hand to what? Accuse him. To accuse Joshua. Okay? Remember, now, Satan has access to heaven. Going around, we see that in Job, we see that here. Okay? But also, God has put parameters around him. He's only go so far. He's given a lot of rope to move with. Okay? But he had given him everything, obviously. I love verse 2. Look at the Lord's response to Satan. Look, look at that. Look at it. This is just nothing but awesome. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuked you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? The fire of hell, the fire of condemnation, the fire of destruction. Have I not chosen Israel and, and, and brought them out as a brand from the fire? Now look at verse 3. Now Joshua is clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel in these filthy garments. 
And he spoke, verse 4, and said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity. So what does that mean? Those filthy garments were representative of his sinfulness, his dirtiness, his wickedness, his evil, his disobedience, right? It, it was his filthy garment. And God removed those and replaced it with the garments of righteousness. Look at the end of verse 4. See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes, robes of righteousness. Amen, beloved? That is the grace of God. That's what God does in Christ, isn't it? Stop right here for a moment. Right there we have gospel. Right there is the good news. Right there is the answer to the world's problems and my problems and your problems. Right there is the answer to the S-I-N virus problem. It's Christ. He's the answer. You see, it's not a physical problem, it's a spiritual problem. It's not a secular problem. It's a heart problem. And the Old Testament says a leopard cannot change his spots. Neither can a sinner change his ways. Not until Christ comes in to that heart and roots in there, takes a seat on the throne of your heart, and begins to change your life. It's the power of God unto salvation. Amen? And that's why we come to church. That's why we're here. That's why we love one another. That's why we're in the Word. That's why we pray. That's why we have devotion. It's this personal relationship we have with Christ. You see, devil's all over the place in the Old Testament. Let's go to the New Testament passages. Some of them. I just give a sampling of the Old. Here's a sampling of the New. Matthew chapter 4, we have the devil, known as the slanderer. The Greek word for devil means slanderer. He tempted Jesus. Man, he's got He's got, he, he's got, what do you want to call it? He's got the gall. <laughs> right? We're going to look further into that next week as well. We're going to look at the fall a little bit, his approach to Adam and Eve, we're going to look at his approach to Christ, because in those stories we find the schemes, we find the method, we find the means by which Satan trips up the church. Wants to attack and destroy her. Matthew chapter 13, 28 and 39. If you'd like to turn, I'll, I'll just do that real quick. Matthew chapter 13, if I got it. Matthew chapter 13, I want you to see this. Verse 28, talking about the tares among the wheat. He says in 28, and he has said to them, an enemy has come, has done this. He has put tares amongst the wheat. Someone has sowed tares amongst the wheat. And he says in verse 28, an enemy has done this. The slave said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? We'll go, we'll go gather up all the tares. We'll clean up the mess. The answer is no. But later on, I want you to see this in verse 39. We are told who does this. Who is the one that puts tares amongst the wheat? Who is the one that puts false teachers in the church? False prophets in the church? Verse 39. An enemy who sowed them is the devil. Verse 39. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. In other words, we're always, the church is always going to have mixed in it false teachers, false prophets. Right? Yes. And it won't totally be cleaned up till Christ comes again. But who plants them there? The evil one. Who plants the Joel Osteen's? Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 you're going to hear names next couple weeks, religion, stuff like that. No question about it. i got to call them, you got to call them out, beloved. There's no, there might be political correctness, but there is no religious Christianity correctness. It is what it is. 
He plants, he'll plant a whole church here. He'll come in and ruin the denomination. He'll come in and create false teaching in the church to pull some disciples after themselves. The enemy is relentless. And it's always, always, always begins with an attack on the truths of God's word. Always. Mark 3.22, he's called the ruler of the demons. John chapter 8, verse 44, he's labeled a murderer and a liar. A murderer and a liar. 2 Corinthians 11.14, he's called an angel of light. Talk about deceptive. He dresses himself up to look like he's one of us. Or to look like he's Gabriel or Michael the Archangel. He'll even try to look like Jesus. And guess what? On the outside, he can. Right? Just, just to begin to deceive it. Just to begin to see. To pull us away from the real Christ. Christ of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, He's called the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, he's called the prince of the power of this air. Ephesians 4, 27, he's an opportunist. An opportunist. Let me read this. Where do you get that from? Listen to this. Ephesians 4, 27, verse 26. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger, anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. If he sees you angry, if he sees bitterness in your heart, He's going to take opportunity with that and try to trip you up, try to get you to sin. If he sees you anxious, if he sees you worried, he's going to be a, what, an opportunist to try to get you to, to fall. Peter comes along in 1 Peter 5, 8 and says, he's your adversary of the devil, the roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's not talking about unbelief, he's talking about children of God, followers of Christ. James 4 says, says, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Jude 9, Michael the archangel showed Satan so much respect that Michael, he, he didn't say, I rebuke you. He said, the Lord rebuke you. And Jude. And today we got guys going, I rebuke you. And then David, how legit is that, though? How legit is it? Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon, the serpent, who deceives the whole world. So Revelation 12, 9, also called the serpent. So they go back to Genesis chapter 3. We know the serpent is who? The devil himself. Revelation 12, 10, he's called the accuser of the brethren. He loves to point out the sin in your life and remind you over and over and over and over again just how guilty you are. And to which we say, yes, I am. But Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Amen. So if there's a sin in your past that you've never gotten over, where do you think those thoughts are coming from? The thoughts of God. It's from the enemy. Because if he can keep you embedded in past sin, he makes you impotent for ministry today. And that's his goal. Because it came through our ministry to one another, our ministry to this world, that we minister of Christ with our gifts that he has given us. And Satan hates it! So he schemes, he plans, he organizes, and he's thinking, if I can just get that saint who ran away from me and ran to Christ, if I can just keep them, what, how can I get to them? They got a sin from 5, 6, 10, 15 years ago. If I can just keep them bogged down and uh, get their eyes off the forgiveness of Christ and his cross and get them just to hunker down 
to stay in that foxhole. They're not going to get up and fight. He accuses, accuses, accuses. Now, at the end, we learn this in Revelation 22 and 10, who's going to be bound for a thousand years, in which, during that thousand years, Christ ruled with Jerusalem, from Jerusalem, with Israel. And at the end of that thousand years, he'll be cast into the lake of fire forever. So let me conclude this person with this. Let me say this. This could be very bold. I held this for right here. I really believe, with all the references to Satan in both the Old and New Testament, it is impossible to hold to the Christian faith without accepting the, rea- accepting the reality of the devil himself. And yet we have many people today that call themselves Christians who don't believe in the devil. Wow. Yeah, that's exactly what the devil wants, isn't it? He'd love for, for Christians to say you think he does not exist. He's got an advantage at that point, doesn't he? Let's look at his character for a moment. Let's look at his character for a moment. Go back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. I want to simply say this. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm, what? Against the schemes of the devil. The schemes. This is where we find a little bit about his character. The schemer means he's a slanderer, a mudslinger, defamer. He's crafty plotting. He's arranging and organizing ways to trip us up, to keep us down. And he's so, here the thing is, he's had thousands of years of practice. He's good at what he does. He's so good at what he does, we have no chance without Christ. We have no chance without being in his word. We will lose every single time. That's how good he is. John 8, 44, I read this a minute ago, he described as a murderer and a liar. So when you see that young teenager or anyone who does those mass murders, I look at that and I go, I'm not surprised, like father, like son. I'm not talking about the earthly father. I'm talking about the devil himself. He's a murderer. So we should not be surprised that we have this mass murder. Satan loves that. That's his character. He loves death. Whether it's physical or spiritual. Okay? What you see there is the influence of Satan indirectly, indirectly creating and, and maneuvering and manipulating a, and creating a worldly system that fosters and produces murderers that reflect his character. You see that? For Peter 5, the lion is an animal. You ever watch those shows, Wild Kingdom or whatever, and you see the lion going to attack its prey? Well, what do you think Peter got that from? I mean, you get it from watching Wild Kingdom. You get it from <laughs> I do like that. But though he's, let's just keep balance here. Though one time, remember, he's not God. He's not omniscient, doesn't know that God's omniscient. He's not all-powerful, God is. He's not omnipresent. In other words, he's not everywhere at once. He's located. He's a person. So he's only one place at a time. So let's not, he, he's not God. And actually, I've said this before. He, he, he's actually in the hands of God, and God limits where he can go. He limits his access, and his days are numbered, and he's going to be cast in eternity in the pit of hell. He cannot act beyond the limits that God has set for him. Let's just keep that in mind. However, what makes him look so big at times is he has allies. He has the world, and he's got the flesh. He's got two big allies. First, the world, which he has added, in other words, the world. He's made a system. 
He has systematically organized a world that has turned away from its creator. On to other creators. Or to no creator. There's no such thing as God. You know, there's no, there's no deity. We're Big Bang Theory, Black Hole, we just happen to live here after millions and millions of years evolved. There's no God involved in that process. He set up that system, or in, or in case people don't believe in that system, he's created other false religions. So he's got us from both angles. He's got the world from both angles, right? Here's a couple of historical examples. Let me, let me read this to you. When the church thrives, Satan goes on the attack. In the early part of the church, it thrived up to around 500-600 A.D. But that once flourishing church in Asia, Middle East, and North Africa became increasingly corrupt and weak. And when you look at the roots of Roman Catholicism, it began around 600 A.D. It became the system it became known for around the 1400s, which resulted in the Reformation. Okay? Just park there for a moment. The Reformation is the revival of the gospel again. Okay? You know why 600 to 1500 is called the Dark Ages? Because it's theologically dark. That's why it's really called the Dark Ages. That period of time. The Middle Ages, Dark Ages. Two different terms for that same period of time. So as the church was deteriorating within, and the corruption of Rome was spreading, and it was perverting the gospel, Satan was doing that from within, but he was also sowing seeds from without. On the outside, he launched a counterattack. He was attacking it from within, but now coming from without. And he inspired visions and sayings of false prophets like Muhammad. Resulting in the creation of Islam. Thousands to follow him. He planted Islam using a man. As a result, a billion people follow today. That's satanic. That's how Satan works. Through a vision, through a dream. And he's done similar things closer to home in our day and age. For example, in the 1820s, a vision given to Joseph Smith. Who was a vision given from? Satan. And that's here in America in the 1820s, known as Mormonism. In the 1860s, he inspired men like Charles Taze Russell. The creation of Jehovah Witnesses. So meanwhile, while Satan's relentlessly attacking the church from within, he is counterattacking from without by creating other religions. All because he hates Christ. And he hates the church of Christ. You see more closely how he works? How he works in history? How he works in order to keep the minds of the blind, the minds of the unbelieving. To keep them blind from what? From, from seeing the glory of Jesus Christ, the gospel. So now, uh, I'm going to end with this application. So when you get to the armor of God, and you see the sword of the Spirit being the word of God, it is the power to deal with the darkness and the blindness that Satan has created in this world to keep unbelievers from seeing the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And the reason it's the word of God is the spirit because of spiritual warfare. It's not as if if I could just go find the ark somewhere in Turkey, then the whole world's going to see the Bible is true and everyone's going to believe. No, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the 
Word of God. Satan knows that. That's why he's constantly attacking it from within and from without. He knows the weapon. He's afraid of this weapon. Maybe the church doesn't fear it enough in a reverential way. How do you know we spend time with it? Not, not just on church, but in our homes, with our families, with family devotions, with personal devotions, spending time with Christ between Sundays. Those are just a few examples on a large historical scale. This does not include the liberalization of modern denominations or the fall of seminaries like Princeton and Harvard who once were very evangelical at the very beginning, I should say, but fell to secularism, secularism, and no longer hold to the gospel. That's just a sampling of how he works. Next week is going to be closer to home. There's two ways Satan attacks. He attacks the world to keep blinded the minds of the unbelieving, but then he attacks the church. And next week we're going to hone on hone in on this and how he does that. From within and from without. Please be here for that. Okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time together. And God is before I dive into this, it's weightier. The Lord God is. It's the way it is. I wish life would be light, fun, easy. But the reality is, Lord God, we are in a battle. You remind me of that in your word in the passage this morning. And in many, many, many other passages, and you remind us who the enemy is and how ugly and fierce and cunning and crafty and powerful he is. Father, unless we acknowledge that, unless we're in your word, we're going to fall flat on our faces in this war. But we have no choice. We have no choice in that. Father, I think with one voice we can say this. The battles we face in this earth against the enemy are nothing compared to the glory of being with our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, you are worthy. May we be found faithful soldiers in the spiritual battle on this earth, knowing that you've been bought the victory. You bought it with your blood. You've got to call us home, Lord God, to be with you. And that war one day will be over, and then there will be perfect rest and perfect peace. Until that day, God, may we be found faithful fighting the fight for the honor and the beauty of Christ Himself. To His name we pray. Amen.